Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. I am keenly aware that during this sermon, I am going to want to be very prayerful and careful about what I say and how I say it, because I am aware that we are in very difficult times. So you will notice that this morning's sermon, I'm going to be a little bit more note attentive than I normally am. But with that, I just want you to be aware that, again, I feel like there are certain things God's put in my heart to say to the City Church family. As you know, we are in the middle of a sermon series that's entitled Resurrection. And for the past several weeks, we've been moving towards Easter Sunday, and we've been looking at resurrection in the Scripture. And as I mentioned last week, and it's true again this week, I've had to alter what I was going to preach on because of the times that we are in. But I'm very excited that the resurrection has so much to say with what's going on in our lives due to the coronavirus. The title of my sermon is this. The Death of Death. The title of this sermon is The Death of Death. What I am aware of in my own life is that death is real. As most of you are aware, my father passed away just a few days ago this past week. It was an incredible time where I was able to be there with um, my son, with my mom, and with my two older brothers. I sat vigil by his bedside and I watched as physical death overcame one of the heroes of my life. But in the midst of that, I found that there was a passage of scripture that spoke dearly to my heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It seems odd to say that someone would be blessed because they're mourning. But what I believe is, is that if you've loved someone enough to grieve and to mourn, that's living the life Jesus calls us to live. And so we truly are blessed when we grieve and when we mourn. As I sat there by my dad's bed, I thought about life as well as death, specifically his life. As I sat there, I thought about him. I remembered how when I was a young boy, my dad earned his MBA from the University of Wisconsin. I thought about my dad and the the farm that my mom and he raised us on. Thought about my dad as a corporate engineer. But what I also thought about was when I was young, I always viewed my father as someone who was strong and invincible. But as I got older, so did he. And that invincibility ran into reality. Now, although my dad's faith in Jesus was quiet and strong, which was true to his personality, I watched, especially over the last two and a half years, as his physical body succumbed to the brokenness of this world. What seemed invincible wasn't. And because of that, there is grief and there's loss in my life. You see, I'm aware of death intimately just over the past three days. But what I also know is I'm not the only one that's grieving in our culture. 
I know that there are people who are part of the City Church family, and you are grieving as well. I think about the graduates that are a part of City Church. I think about the high school, the college, and the graduate students who were so excited about all the work they've put in and the celebrations for graduations. No celebrations won't happen. I'm wearing my UVA shirt in honor of the athletes that I know at UVA, many of whom worship with us at City Church. I think about those athletes, and I think specifically about the wrestlers that are part of our church. Six of them were going to the national tournament. Two of them had a huge chance of being All-Americans, if not placing in the top five. One of them, I believe, would have come home with a national championship. As I think about them, I think about grief, dreams that aren't going to happen, visions that aren't going to come true, and there's grief in that. I think about a young lady who's like a daughter to me at City Church. Her wedding was planned for the Friday after Easter, and what we know is that she won't be able to celebrate like she had planned. There's grief in that, and although we will have the vows, and the actual wedding ceremony is going to take place. The dreams are not there. There's grief. What I also know is, is that some of us have been struggling because of other things, and there's grief in our hearts. And the reason why is because the times in which we're living. We have watched the financial markets, the health system, the political system, the educational system, all of which are filled with incredible people, all of which have incredible wisdom, much of, the, of God's wisdom in, is involved in all of those. But what I know is those systems are still man-made. The idea of the financial markets, the health system, political system, even the educational system, they are man-made, therefore, they are intrinsically not able to support our faith, our hope, and our trust. You see, when the foundations are shaken and the things that we put our faith in move under our feet, what ends up happening is we grieve, we become afraid, and we're scared. What I believe is this, is that where we put our trust and our hope and our faith matters. And if you have felt that move under your feet, I want to encourage you to realign, at least reassess where you've put your faith, your hope, and your trust. Another thing that I'm experiencing for the first time in my life is that there's a daily count of people that have passed away from the coronavirus. I can't imagine the grief that is hitting so many homes all over the world. But in the end, I know and you know as followers of Jesus, we are called to put our ultimate trust, our ultimate faith, our ultimate belief in him. But even in the midst of that, I want to have somewhat of a cautionary tone. And here's why. I've been saying this for months. Several months ago, I felt impressed to begin to talk openly about my concern about faith in Jesus. You see, if you assume the financial systems will carry you, then you're going to have basic expectations of those systems. And when they fail, 
you will feel as though they failed you, and they have. My concern is, what are our basic assumptions and expectations about Jesus? Let me give an example. Several years ago, I had a person approach me and enter into a conversation with me about Jesus and their faith in him. In the midst of that conversation, they relayed to me that their life, and they were believing Jesus for this, that their life would become so blessed that everyone around them would want to know about God and who Jesus is. But my heart grew sad because as I listened to their conversation about Jesus, what I realized was this, is that they were following Jesus and they were believing that he would give them the American dream. Their blessing was really nothing more than the American dream. That their idea was this, is that Jesus' purpose, why he came, everything about him was so that they could become so blessed that the American dream would be theirs and people want to know how they've achieved, achieved that. But I would say of this, that's not why Jesus came. It isn't. And my concern for many of us as we follow Jesus, that if that's why we've been following him, then we're going to feel like Jesus isn't for us what he said he would be. That if the American dream begins to elude us because of the coronavirus, then somehow God has abandoned us. And I want to say emphatically that in the resurrection of Jesus, that in the celebration of Easter, we discover who Jesus truly is, who he truly is. I would say of this person that held that conversation with me is that they have a Christmas view of Jesus, not an Easter view of Jesus. And there's a huge difference. I'm not saying that Easter, I'm sorry, Christmas isn't real. But what I would say is without Easter, you would have never, ever heard of Christmas. As a matter of fact, and I say this almost every time I teach on the resurrection, that Christmas is only mentioned in two Gospels. But up to half of all four of the Gospels speak about Easter. You see, Easter is the point. And it's in Easter that we discover the who, the what, and the why of Jesus. You see, in Easter, Jesus meets the real world. Jesus meets the world in which we live now. Jesus meets death. As we move through this, I want to begin here and remind us of a sermon that I preached two weeks ago. It was entitled Resurrection Rumors. You see, Jesus has been predicting his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The scriptures in the gospels tell us he mentioned this multiple times to his disciples. And each time he mentioned his death, burial, and resurrection, his disciples would recoil. And here's why. They had a basic assumption and an expectation that the Messiah would never die, that the Messiah would live forever. And as they were putting their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus, they felt like that meant he would never die. And so as he began to speak of it, they grew confused. You see, again, it's so important that we have accurate assumptions and expectations of Jesus. So here's what I want to do. I want to slowly process through 
resurrection. But I want to do it with the idea that death defeats death. The first thought is one that I pulled from a book that deeply impacted my life. The book was written by J. Robert Ashcroft. The title of the book, and I looked it up this morning, you can get it on Amazon for about $10. The title of his book is The Sequence of the Supernatural. His son John was the 79th Attorney General of the United States. But in his book, The Sequence of the Supernatural, Dr. Ashcroft, who was part of the education that I was able and blessed to have, writes this, death precedes resurrection. Without death, there is no resurrection. And since that is true, and Easter proves that to be true, then I think it's important for us to understand what does the Bible say about death? Well, in order to understand that, we need to very briefly go back to Genesis chapter 1. And in the book of Genesis, we discover that God, through the Holy Spirit, brings life. And as God is done putting life together and speaking life into existence, he announces, well, it is good. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God comes to Adam and explains to him the following. He says to Adam, there's only one thing that I want you to keep away from, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, God created Adam and Eve with free will. That's one of the beautiful gifts of God. And so in the midst of that free will, God gives Adam one warning, one and one alone. And in that warning, here's what God says to Adam. It's very fascinating. He says, Adam, if you eat of this tree, and when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You see, the problem from the beginning is death, not sin. I'm not saying that sin isn't a problem, but biblically speaking, death was the problem from the very beginning. And what ends up happening in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, is that the adversary of our soul comes to Adam and tempts him, comes to Eve and tempts her, and says to them, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly not die. You see, again, death is the problem. Sin is an agency that promotes death, but ultimately death is the problem in Scripture. And then what we discover as we quickly now move into the Newer Testament is that Easter transforms everything. That death has been the problem throughout the Older Testament. That death is something that humankind has had to deal with. And it's brought grief. And it's brought mourning. And it's brought loss and disappointment. But then suddenly, in the Newer Testament, we discover Easter. And in Easter, and in the resurrection, everything changes. What I want to do now is very quickly go through the primary passages that God put on my heart as we think about the resurrection of Jesus and how death defeats death. The first passage comes to us from the Apostle Paul. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 through 57, 
He writes, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul, in looking at the resurrection of Jesus, brings to us this incredible text. And in this Bible passage that Paul brings to us, he announces that death has lost its sting and that victory has been taken out of death. What's even more fascinating is that when the Apostle Paul writes this, and you'd notice this in your scriptures, but there is a footnote to an Older Testament passage that Paul is quoting. It's taken from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. In it, the prophet Hosea is prophesying about a future day. And here's what he writes. God says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? You see, when the Apostle Paul writes about the victory in the resurrection and how death has conquered death, he quotes from Hosea. And Hosea is prophetically speaking about a day where God, by his grace and his power, will redeem us from death and he will give us power over the grave. After penning those verses in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, prior to that, though, the Apostle Paul writes this, and I want us to listen carefully to what he writes about the resurrection. Here's why. Jesus' resurrection affects you and affects me. Here's what he writes. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. That verse spoke deeply to me this week. As I watched my father pass away, I was reminded about the fact that these human bodies are perishable. It reminded me again that these human bodies truly are filled with weakness. It reminded me again that this body is corruptible. But the apostle Paul looks at the resurrection of Jesus and he looks at Christ's resurrection, and when he does, he announces to you and to me that the prophecy of Hosea has been fulfilled. That where God said that there would come a day where he would deliver his people from the power of the grave, and he would redeem them from death, it's now true in Jesus that my dad's body, on the day of the resurrection, it will be raised to do life. What was perishable will now be imperishable. What was corrupted will now be incorruptible. And that body which was sown in weakness will be raised to new life in power because of what Jesus has done. 
I don't know how you are, but in a day in an age where death is so common in our conversation, I believe that passages like this are mission critical for us to look at, to study, and to prayerfully apply to our lives. This is a verse that clearly tells us what our assumptions are about Jesus, what our expectations are towards him. That because he is resurrected to new life, when I put my faith, my hope, and my trust in him, I too will be resurrected to new life on the day of the resurrection. Now some of us would say, why do we need to be resurrected? Well, Paul tells us at the end of this phrase, what is sown or buried as a natural body will be raised as a spiritual one. Paul goes on to tell us very quickly this, that these corruptible bodies cannot inhabit heaven. Heaven is perfect. Heaven is without corruption. And so if these bodies, and Paul puts it this way, if this body of death wants to live forever, it's going to have to be transformed. So the hope that we have and the hope that Paul brings us in 1 Corinthians tells us that this natural body will be raised to new life as a spiritual body. Therefore, we will be able to live in heaven forever and ever. Another great question would be, though, is Pete, listen, if all this talk of the resurrection is true, what does it mean for me now? What does it mean? Well, Paul goes on to tell us. It's almost like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Paul is answering all the questions that he knows that we will have. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, here's what Paul says. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm then. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. As a pastor, I want to say this to all of us who are in this video cast and gathering with us for worship. I want to say it again. My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to Jesus. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And Paul goes on to say, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, this world is corrupted. This world is broken. But Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus and my future resurrection frees me up to live fully in this world. Paul wants us to know that what is done in this world will not be wiped away. It's not meaningless. It's not hopeless. It's not purposeless. That in this world, in the resurrection of Jesus and with the hope of the resurrection in front of me, I can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this life that I'm living now will not be expunged from all of creation. But because of the resurrection, I can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that as I live into Jesus and I trust Jesus, that this life that I am now living is not in vain. It will not evaporate it will never be 
extinguished. The final scripture I want to bring to us is my favorite resurrection scripture. It's the one from which I got the title to this sermon, that death defeats death. You see, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God does something that never, ever was planned on. Yes, we have those prophecies from Hosea and others like it from the Older Testament that tell us that God will do an amazing thing that God will deliver us from the grave, that the power of death will be pushed aside and those prophecies are truly fulfilled in Jesus. But you see, in the verse I'm getting ready to read, we discover something no one planned on. And that is this, that death breaks the power of death. Hebrews chapter two, verse 14 tells us this, that since the children have flesh and blood, meaning you and me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Listen to what's being said by the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that God used death to defeat death. No one ever saw that coming. And yet we discover it here that Jesus' life and then his death, his burial and his resurrection, that his death has now defeated death. And all who put our faith and our hope and our trust in him have the same victory that Jesus has. But the last phrase of that passage of Scripture sticks with me. The writer of Hebrews tells us that because Jesus Christ in his death has defeated death, Hebrews 2.15 tells us this, and Jesus is able to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus speaks to my life right here and right now. That because Jesus is resurrected from the dead and his death has conquered death, then what I discover now is in my own life, I don't need to be held as a slave to the fear of death. I can tell you that as a pastor, I've been talking to people over the past several weeks and there are those who are gripped and even frozen by the fear of death. Here's the amazing news of the gospel. You don't have to live that way. I'm not saying that death doesn't cause us to grieve. I'm not saying that death isn't painful. I am all too aware over the past three or four days of the potency of physical death. But here's the good news of the gospel. You do not have to be a slave to the fear of death. The writer of Hebrews announces this, is that because of Jesus using his death to conquer death, that Jesus now frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. You and I can know right now, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that death defeats death.
It happens through Christ. So as we close out our time in this sermon, I'm going to ask that we would put feet to our faith. As we put feet to our faith, I want us to remember a couple brief things. First of all, death precedes resurrection. Death is a passage that almost all of us would pass through. There's another biblical thing that Jesus will do where some through the rapture of the church may not experience death. But for almost all people, now and into the future, death is something that we will all face. But know this, that death precedes resurrection. But also know this, that death defeats death. That in my physical death, in my father's physical death three and a half days ago, that in his physical death through faith in Jesus, he is defeating death through the resurrection life of Christ. Now as we close out our time, I would like for us to take communion together. In the email I sent out this morning, as well as in at the beginning of this service, you've been encouraged to get your communion elements together. I'm excited about this time because normally we will gather together as a large church family in one big room and we celebrate communion together. But now each of us in our own homes can take communion together as one church, one family before Christ. Our text for communion is the common one. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. The Apostle Paul writes to us in his letter the following, and you've heard this read innumerable times before communion. Here's what Paul writes. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus lived in the real world. He was betrayed, and it was on that night that he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we hold the bread up before the Lord, I want us to remember that this bread is the symbol of the physical body of Jesus. But as we hold this bread, please be reminded again that it's through Jesus' death that death is defeated. It's through his physical body that resurrection happens. And as we hold this bread, we have the confidence and the hope in Christ that the same is true for you and for me. Let's give thanks for his broken body. Jesus, we give you thanks for your broken body. And as we hold this bread, we are reminded again that you came into a world that was broken and corrupted and violent and cruel. But even in the midst of that, you stayed true. And because of this, we now through faith as we partake together, we partake with the resurrection hope that your death has conquered 
death. Let's eat together. Now let's hold the cup up before the Lord. As we hold the cup up before the Lord, the scriptures tell us that this is the symbol of Christ's shed blood for us. Paul's challenge is this, is that whenever we eat the bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. You know, to me, that's always been an odd phrase. I thought Paul should have written, let's celebrate, let's remember, let's proclaim the Lord's resurrection until he returns. That's not what Paul says. Paul writes that we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Why is that? It's because Paul knows it's through death, Jesus' death, that death has been defeated. And as we hold this cup, we know that Christ frees us from being slaves to the fear of death through faith in him. Let's give thanks to Jesus for his shed blood. Jesus, thank you for your death. Thank you for coming and dying. Thank you that your shed blood covers our sins. And in this moment, we hold this cup that declares what Paul said, and we believe it's true, that, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus, thank you for your resurrection. Let's drink the cup together. For the next few moments, we're going to worship together and give thanks to Jesus for what he has done for us. God bless you. Let's worship with resurrection life and with all of our hearts.